there are feats of human skill that simply stagger the imagination. In terms of the body, I think about the Olympics, where every couple of years I watch with my mouth just agape as some skier just plummets down a mountainside and somehow manages to land upright. I fast forward two years and think about the gymnast who manages to flip her body in midair what must be a dozen times before somehow sticking the landing. I don't know how they do it. In terms of the mind, I think about driving past Baylor Stadium there on I-35, and I remember what that site looked like just four months ago. And I think about what it's going to look like four months from now when the season kicks off, and the idea that somebody could design something, something that massive and that complicated, and have the walls not just come tumbling down midway through, just boggles my mind, a mind that never got much past the Lego stage of architecture training. (laughs) Even just a quick skim of the Guinness Book of World Records is all that it takes to see that human beings have some amazing abilities. But there's one ability in particular that has always amazed me since I was old enough to try it myself. The ability to get a meal on the table with all the fixings and dessert cooling on the countertop and have everything be hot and ready to eat all at once. I don't know how people do it. I really don't. I've seen my mother do it countless times. I've seen my wife do it countless times. But I don't know how they do it. I've gone to other people's homes... And they seem to have the secret, too. When I go to their homes, there in the center of the table is roast beef, piping hot, ready to eat, steamed vegetables next to that, hot rolls next to that, mashed potatoes to the side, and I smell a pie wafting in from the kitchen. I look for an industrial-sized oven, or maybe they own three or four ovens. That must be the solution, but I don't see anything. It looks like a normal kitchen to me. The ability to pull this off doesn't appear to be sorcery because my wife went to the same high school that I did, so I know she's not a Hogwarts grad. So I know that's not what it is, but I've never managed to get the hang of it. When I try, the rolls always seem to end up doughy when everything else is ready, or the oil in the deep fryer is still barely warm whenever I'm pulling vegetables out of the oven. I can manage a main course, I can cook a side dish, I can even bake a dessert now and then. But having everything ready at once seems just beyond me for whatever reason. It's not the reading of the recipe or the techniques of cooking that give me trouble. What I've never managed to figure out is the timing. Timing is everything that they say, and they say that with good reason. Comedians are quick to attribute their success not to the quality of their joke writing, or the force of their personality, but to their sense of comedic timing. Hall of Fame pitcher Warren Spahn once said that the key to hitting a baseball is timing, and the key to pitching a baseball is upsetting that timing. And even Scott Adams, that wise sage, the creator of the comic strip Dilbert, reminds us that your best work requires timing. If somebody wrote the best hip-hop song of all time in the Middle Ages, he had bad timing. (laughs) And yes, with ministry too, timing often seems 
to be everything, but it rarely seems to be convenient. In Matthew's gospel, the low point of Jesus's earthly ministry outside of Jerusalem seems to come at the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. Before this point, we've been told about how Jesus, having been named the outstanding preacher of the year at the seminary on the mount, after having selected and sent out 12 protégés, after having brought sight to the blind, having brought a voice to the mute, and even life to the dead, after all of that, he decides it's time to bring it all home, to Nazareth, where he'd grown up. When he does so, Scripture tells us that his old fishing buddies and his old babysitters are astounded but not for the same reason that the crowds who've been following him are astounded. If you're like me, you live in a state of ignorance when it comes to how a hot dog becomes a hot dog. I don't want to know. I just don't want to know. I haven't, read, I haven't read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, and I have no intention to do so. I haven't seen the documentaries about meat packaging, and I don't want to. And I have never and will never go to the Wikipedia page for the hot dog. I just don't want that information. I know in a vague sense that I don't want to know where a hot dog comes from. I just want to eat one when I go to a ball game and have that be that. Knowing too much about a hot dog's origin would probably spoil it for me. Well, the crowds in Matthew were a lot like me. They didn't really care where Jesus came from. They didn't really care who his parents were. They just wanted to be taught. They just wanted to be healed. But the people of Nazareth didn't have that luxury. They knew where Jesus came from. They knew his origins. And they couldn't get past those origins long enough to see the final result, that perfect result, standing before them. And so they took offense to him, and they rejected him so quickly that he never even worked a miracle there. So Jesus... Saddled with the strength of divinity, but also with the vulnerability of humanity, Jesus probably already had a heavy heart when he was brought some very bad news. News you've heard read this morning. John the Baptist, his forerunner, his baptizer, the one he had called the greatest born among women and the Elijah to come, John was dead. Beheaded, in fact, by a weak puppet ruler in defiance of Jewish law against such executions. Now, on a personal level, this must have been simply devastating for Jesus. Few could understand the burden of preaching the kingdom of God, and now one of the few who seemed to get it was gone. According to Luke's gospel, Jesus and John were actually second cousins, which adds this touch of familial grief to the story that Matthew paints. Upon hearing about John, Jesus must have been deeply troubled on an individual level. But beyond any personal connection between the forerunner and the Christ that he paved the way for, John's death had theological implications for Jesus. It represented yet another victory of the kingdom of this world, even as Jesus tried to proclaim the kingdom of God. It was another triumph of sin over righteousness. And most of all, it was a vivid foreshadowing 
of the death that Jesus was slowly making his way toward. A reminder of what he would be facing soon enough. And so with his soul darkened by rejection and loss, disappointment and grief, Jesus took up that spiritual discipline of solitude, retreating to a deserted place to pray. It's difficult for us to get into Jesus' head. The whole fully divine thing makes psychoanalysis a little bit fuzzy on our end. But it's not hard for us to imagine a burdened Jesus that just needed some time to think, just needed some time to reflect, just needed some time to pray. For just a little while, the Lord needed some me time. I need my me time, desperately, to the point where I wake up every morning at 5.15 a.m., an hour before my wife, just to make sure that I get that me time. All the extroverts in the room are wondering why I hate myself while the introverts are nodding along, saying, I understand. I see where you're coming from. But that time is a time for me to charge up for the day, to enjoy the silence just for a little while, that silence that a long day at school and at church just doesn't always allow for. That silence, that me time, that solitude was what Jesus sought. Well, the crowds that were interested in Jesus must not have had much regard for me time because they didn't give him much space. Watching him from the shore, they followed his boat by foot, waiting for him to land. And when Jesus finally stepped on shore, they were waiting for him with all the eagerness of a child on Christmas morning. Having heard about this healing preacher, they were ready to see what he could do for them. They didn't know why he'd gone off by himself and left them. They might not have known about Nazareth. They may not have even known about John. In that moment, they simply knew what they needed. And they didn't seem overly concerned with what Jesus might need. Just a case of bad timing. And so, verse 14 tells us very clearly, Jesus referred the spiritual seekers to a website with streaming videos of some great sermons. For the sick, he recommended his office hours, reminded them that they could make an appointment next time. And he sent them all away with a reminder that he'd be back again on Sunday and that that in the future would really be a better time to get in contact with him. Of course, it's not what Jesus did at all. Verse 14 tells us rather that when he saw them, he had compassion and he cured their sick. Setting aside his own plans for the day, he ministered. Because in spite of his own weariness, he saw before him a desperation that only the love of God could satisfy. Whether he was ready or not, here they came. Now it's tricky knowing when you're ready to minister. I accepted my call to vocational ministry when I was a junior in high school, and so I thought the logical first step toward a career in full-time vocational ministry was to get an undergraduate degree in religion, to spend four years studying the Bible, studying theology, and then see where that left me. As graduation from Baylor loomed, I just didn't feel quite ready. So I made my way across campus here to Truett to study in seminary for a few years. And after about a year into the program and about a year into my time as a professional minister, 
I figured getting ordained would better than prepare me for ministry. So my home church put on a beautiful service. I had hands laid on me by deacons, and I was ordained. But I still didn't feel quite ready. So now here I am a few weeks away from getting my MDiv, walking across the stage, shaking Dr. Garland's hand and receiving that blessed sheet of paper. And here's the funny thing. I still don't feel ready. Surely there's got to be another preaching class that I should take. There's got to be another theological book I should read. Heck, I never even took life and work of the pastor. So what church is going to hire me knowing that? The timing just doesn't seem perfect yet. But in our carefully planned, heavily scheduled lives, it can be easy to lose sight of something very, very important. Ministry is not conducted according to the calendar of convenience, but according to when people need God's love the most. If you're here today thinking that your ministry is going to begin the the day that you get your degree from this place, or the day that you get your first church job, or the day that somebody calls you pastor, or youth minister, or worship pastor for the first time, word of caution, whether paid or unpaid, whether glamorous or menial, you're going to have a lot of opportunities for ministry before then. Maybe it'll be through things as simple as praying for someone who needs prayer. Maybe it'll be as simple as showing kindness to somebody who needs a touch from God. Maybe it'll be as big as coordinating a missions project. I don't know. I don't know. But don't let a calendar or a five-year plan dictate for you when it's time to share God's love. The crowd that came to Jesus that day was desperate. Desperate to see and hear the love of God. And there are people just like that today, both in our churches and outside them. He's your loud upstairs neighbor. She's the haggard-looking cashier at HEB. They're the young family that stays for the service but leaves before the invitation is over. And like the crowd that day on the shore, when these people indicate that they need help, that they're ready for a word from God, they rarely seem to have good timing for you. So faced with this, how will you respond? With a glance at the watch, with an appeal to come back later, or with the compassion of Christ? You can always find a reason not to reach out to someone. Because ministry opportunities, I've found, rarely seem to be handed out on slow Tuesday afternoons when there's nothing else to do. On the contrary, ministry seems to be much more about the 3 a.m. phone call from the frantic church member whose mother's been rushed to ICU. Ministry seems to reside much more in the conversation with the teary-eyed widow who approaches you in the parking lot after a long day at the office. The people who need to see God's love the most rarely seem to make an appointment. Because frankly, they usually don't have that kind of time. What I see from Jesus is that full-time Christian ministry is about a lot more than a position and a salary. It depends on a lot more than whether you work 40 hours a week or 15. Full-time ministry means setting aside convenience for the sake of the kingdom. It means setting aside the details of even the most carefully crafted life plan 
when confronted with the call of the Spirit to serve. It means making Christ Lord of all, even the clock, even the calendar. And it means recognizing that it's not only paid staff who are called to love God and to love people. And so regardless of what your future vocation or present vocation may be, may we all be full-time ministers, even when it's bad timing. Amen.